according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs 17. Join me in Proverbs 17. Last week, I think we covered uh, quite a bit. We started with uh, verse 9 and then worked our way down. 9, 10, 11, 12. Almost got there. Almost got through 12. We'll pick up after a word of prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. In preparation for the study of God's truth, let's humble ourselves before His glory. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your blessings. We come before you as your children, recipients of your grace provision, thankful for the blessings of the truth. As children of truth, Father, we have the Word of God to turn to and the Spirit of truth indwelling each one of us. Thank you, Father, for the blessing that we have now to stand before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. So bless our time of study, Father. Open our eyes, teach us and feed us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so there's so many things here in this chapter that are very practical uh, in daily life, practical as we function in society in different ways, like the bribery in uh, verse 8. It works every time, but we still shouldn't be doing it. Uh, the perversion of justice is an attack on the justice of God, and, and no believer should be a part of that. Uh, so that even though it works, and even though the world does it all the time, we, uh, we do not engage in the world's activities for the world's reasons that we, uh, we glorify the Lord in all that we do because this is what His Word would call for us to do. Likewise, we keep our lips shut in verse 9 when it says, He who conceals a transgression seeks love. And that's the love that chooses to stay silent on certain matters rather than just be a gossip and a slanderer spreading things all around. Because he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. And I coined an expression as we talked about friendship death the idea that separation is the concept that underlies all categories of death. That when your soul is separated from your body, you experience physical death. That when your human spirit is separated from God's spirit, that you have spiritual death or operational death for a carnal believer. All death is a separation. The second death is an eternal separation in the lake of fire. All death is a separation, fundamentally, when it comes down to it. So when we have an expression here in Proverbs 17, 9 that says, uh, he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends, then we could think of that literally as a death. It's a friendship death. And this is what Satan does when he's a slanderer, when he's a liar, when he's a murderer, and he uh, works his way into local churches with his various agents, and he tries to sow discord among the brethren. He tries to divide brothers and sisters in Christ. And as he's doing so, he's creating uh, friendship death uh, in the midst of, of those that should have love for one another. And that's why it's the number one sin. And when God takes six and seven sins that are an abomination to him, that seventh and pinnacle one is uh, one who spreads strife among brothers. That is the, uh, the ultimate of, uh, of sins that causes God's wrath. We went past that to verse 10. A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. And the recognition there that uh, if you're humble to the Word of God, a single rebuke can work wonders. Whereas if you're arrogant against the Word of God, all the preaching in the world isn't going to do anything. In fact, even uh, the number of blows isn't going to do anything because you're so hard-hearted and resistant to uh, that kind of instruction. I guess I should get the slide show caught up to where we are because we looked at that and we looked at that. The goal of our instruction is love, but the gossip slanderer engineers friendship death. And we looked at those verses. And then wisdom and understanding prepare the humble to respond to rebukes. That responsiveness is such that it outperforms a hundred blows to the fool. 
it outperforms a hundred blows. And this is the contrast. And it's a better than contrast. It's a more than contrast, which is common. It's used in various ways in the book of Proverbs. In fact, we'll have one this morning when we talk about it's better to be face to face with the angry she bear (laughs) than to be face to face with a fool and his folly. That's a better than proverb. And, and if I ask for a show of hands this morning, there's not anyone that would like to stand face to face with the angry uh, bear that's been robbed of her cubs. Who would, want, who would want to do that? That's like the no-brainer. And so these better than contrasts are self-evident. These proverbs preach themselves when it uh, comes down to that. Point 11, we developed out of verse 11. When an individual reaches days of Noah, level of personal rebellion... The discipline that God assigns, oh, it gets ferocious. An angel of cruelty. An angel of cruelty. And there's so much, I think, that could be brought out of this verse. I really think this verse needs to be developed uh, in a, uh, in really a more comprehensive angelology study into how does God assign fallen angels and, and evil spirits and demons, how does God assign them in permissive will to be agents of His wrath, agents of His discipline? For instance, when Job was afflicted by Satan or when, when God took volunteers to engineer the death of King Ahab or when an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized King Saul or when uh, Paul delivered over Hymen- uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan for the destruction of their flesh that their soul may be saved in the day of judgment. There's, there's a variety of instances, far too many than I like, but many instances in the Scripture whereby believers, believers in permissive will of God are given over to the fallen angelic empowerments for temporal life affliction. And the temporal life affliction is then assigned. And it is assigned, like I say, to, to Saul and to, to other examples, to Job in undeserved suffering. Saul was very deserved, but Job was undeserved suffering. And in all of these instances, uh, it was the permissive will of God that lifted that hedge and allowed for the fallen angels to uh, to do what they wanted to do all along. And that is a fruitful study. So I think uh, this is a verse that needs to be included in those kind of studies. A rebellious man seeks only evil, only evil. And in the days of Noah, language of Genesis 6-5, every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. That shows a maximum blackout of the soul. That shows the maximum uh, where every thought is only directed towards evil. As it says here, a rebellious man seeks only evil. He's he's so far lost in that realm, he has no interest even in human good. (laughs) Okay? Human good has no interest to him. It's, it's only evil continually. And uh, that's a rough place of darkness. And so what does God assign? A cruel messenger will be sent against him. A cruel messenger. And the word here is the word for angel. It's the word, the malak, the Hebrew word for angel. An angel of cruelty. An angel of cruelty is assigned. And so uh, that's, that causes you now to start thinking about different angels of cruelty that, that uh, perhaps have been dispatched in different uh, episodes of, of, uh, of my life, thinking back through the years of, of, of uh, two years in particular of prolonged darkness and an angel of cruelty that woke me up, that uh, got me to repent and, and brought me out of my reversionism at that, at that stage. Um, anyway, the terms cruelty, I think, get our attention, such as in Proverbs 5, 9. Um, if you don't learn the lessons uh, and you get involved in promiscuity, you get involved in harlotry, there's a price to pay. And the price to pay in harlotry, you're having, you're having your sexual fun here and now, but there's a price to pay. And it says, uh, you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. Your years to the cruel one in Proverbs 5.9. And we say, well, who's the cruel one? What's this cruel one all about? And, uh, and then if that, if that gets your attention, if that's an attention getter in Proverbs 5.9, then this angel of cruelty goes right, right alongside with that. And now you've really got my attention twice over. I've got a double attention getter now that, uh, 
that, that wants to learn more and wants to understand this better. Proverbs 16, 14, the cruelty or the fury of a king is like messengers of death, the angel of death. And now we get, you know, these days you get, you know, cartoon figures of the Grim Reaper or whatever. You get this, they make it cartoonish. They make it as if it's something uh, silly or something, you know. Um, no. This is, a, a, again, Malak, angel, messenger of death. And uh, issues there. And obviously we know about Paul. Paul received a thorn in the flesh. And what was that? It was an angel an angel of Satan that was sent to torment him, to keep him from exalting himself. And so there's another illustration of a born-again believer. I think like Job, nothing, of, nothing uh, he did to deserve it, but in undeserved suffering to keep him from exalting himself based upon the glories he witnessed in the third heaven, um, that angelos, that angel of Satan was sent to torment him. All right. Moving on then, a better than proverb, a better than proverb. A better than proverb demonstrates what is preferable to the folly of fools. And uh, I tell you, when, when uh, you encounter this, of course, your own foolishness is the worst because you can't run from yourself. <laughs> so if, if, you're the, if your folly is the fool that you're dealing with, well then you need God's wisdom to, to remedy that and, and recover. Uh, but then you've got other fools and uh, in proximity. And you ask yourself, why, why am I in this proximity? And, uh, and if you have the opportunity to separate, you can. But if it's your local church and uh, you're surrounded by a bunch of fools here, well, now you can't just run from that. You've got to minister. You've got to serve. You've got to come alongside. And it might be a biological family. It might be a workplace. It might be, it might be a temporal life circumstance that, uh, for which this is where the Lord has placed you. And so running away from these fools would actually be running away from God's work assignment if He's put you in this position to be the voice of wisdom in your community. And so um, we accept that, we acknowledge that, we thank God for that, but then we at the same time say, this isn't fun. (laughs) I would rather be standing face to face with the mama bear that lost her cubs and for her to think that it's my fault for taking her cubs uh, I would, you know, I would much rather have the angry bear coming at me than um, these fools I got to deal with, right? That's what the proverb is saying, and it is a, a better than proverbs. And we and we get, I think, um, there's a passage in Samuel where King uh, the, the the Philistine says, uh, "Do I lack madmen that you brought this one to act the madman in my presence?" Right. I laugh every time I read that passage because that's the exasperated voice of, of a king, the Philistine king or chieftain. And he, he has no shortage of fools, madmen. Do I lack madmen? What he's saying is I got plenty of madmen. I don't need to add one more to, to, my, to my staff. Okay, Because David was, he was drooling all over his beard. He was acting like a, like a blithering idiot. You know, and that was his mechanism, his escape mechanism. To, uh, to not get killed in that. Anyway, we're familiar with that episode as well. The angry bear. The angry bear is a well-known figure and well-known you know, biblically, well-known culturally, well-known even in modern times to this day. It's proverbial, uh, as it were. That's why these proverbs are so timeless. But 2 Samuel 17, just a handful of passages here. Some of my favorite bear stories in the Bible. Second Samuel 17 and verse 8. And what's happening in this chapter is uh, Absalom is rebelling. David is running for his life. Uh, the, he's lost the throne. It's part of his divine discipline consequences that, uh, that he's dealing with his entire life for the Bathsheba episode. And to make matters worse, not only has uh, Absalom taken the throne, but he's got Ahithophel advising him. 
And the advice of Ahithophel is like, there's nothing better in the world. And so um, when you get this, you notice at the end of chapter 16 it says, the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, and, and this is just an ugly, ugly chapter. I mean, the, the, the raping of these women and the, the abusing of, of, the, of the harem, his father's concubines there on the, the roof in full public view of all Israel. This is, this is just, it's hard to read these things. But the, uh, the advice of Ahithophel which he gave in those days was as if one inquired of the Word of God. You know, it's like going to the burning bush and asking God what he thought. Going to Ahithophel and asking what Ahithophel thought was, was considered comparable. It was as if you were inquiring of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. So the fact that Ahithophel is advising this rebellion, what chance does David have? And so um, Ahithophel said to Absalom, please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. That was good advice. I could have finished it off right then and there. I will come upon him while he's weary and exhausted and terrify him so that all the people who are with him will flee. Then I will strike down the king alone. Ahithophel in single combat was going to go up against the one who went up against Goliath in single combat. What does that tell you? (laughs) Anyway, and then I will bring back all the people to you. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek and then all the people will be at peace. If you take out David, this, this whole civil war is over and your throne is secure. So the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, now call Hushai the archite also and let us hear what he has to say. That's the mistake. And this is where the Spirit of God is rescuing David. Because the Spirit of God is actually allowing Hushai to be the bad counselor, to be the the wrong advice. Tactically it's wrong. But God uses it to save David's life. And so what sparked this? What, what instigated this? Whatever popped that idea in, in Absalom's head that said, okay, I've got Ahithophel's advice, let's get a second opinion now from somebody else. Why does Absalom think that he can pick and choose between those two counselors when the advice of Ahithophel all by himself is like inquiring of the Lord? Why would you inquire of the Lord and then get a second opinion? Okay? Well, thankfully... So this, this spirit, this, this idea popped into Absalom's head and he goes with it. Where do these ideas come from? So he gets this idea and says, okay, hey, let's, get, let's ask Hushai. So <clears throat> Hushai came to him and Absalom said to him, here's what Ahithophel told me. Should we carry out his plan? If not, you speak. So Hushai said to Absalom, this time the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. So he admits, he says, normally, yeah, he's got all the answers. Normally I'd go with whatever he tells you. Just not this time. Moreover, Hushai said, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men and that they are fierce like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Now there's our metaphor. That's our expression. But I think the, the, the illustration now that it's vivid and it's hitting Absalom right where he's most vulnerable, right where he's most insecure, right where he's most um, fearful. Because whatever that is in the back of his mind that's causing him to doubt uh, Ahithophel, there's something there that's an insecurity that he's dealing with. And Hushai's poking it, poking it real hard. And if you think about it, how would you like to be David's son? How would you like to be the son of the man that killed Goliath? And the son of the man that's the, the, like God's own heart, the son of the great king, the great, you know, you talk about filling shoes, you talk about measuring up. And when, when David was a boy, he killed lions, he killed bears, he was shepherding his father's flock. Absalom had a very different childhood. Absalom grew up in a palace. Absalom grew up, you know, his mother was one of, uh, of a harem, he had siblings and half-siblings. Absalom did not have the childhood that David had. He didn't have the, and, and he didn't have the military engagements that his father had. All right. 
And so there's some kind of an insecurity. And when Hushai tells him here, David and his men are, are mighty men of valor. David and his men are, are like, you know, Rambo times ten. They're, they're, they're amazing warriors. Fierce like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father's an expert in warfare. Will not spend the night with the people. Ahithophel's never going to get his one-on-one combat that he thinks he's going to get. Behold, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place. Remember, he did that back in Saul's era. And it will be when he falls on them at the first attack that whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. So that you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna lose the public relations war and it's just the, the people are going to turn against you. And even the one who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will completely lose heart. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and those who are with him are valiant men. So I counsel, and here's his conflicting advice, that all Israel be surely gathered together from Dan even to Beersheba as the sand that is by the sea in abundance so that you will personally go into the battle. Now here's another way that temptation starts to tweak the ego. Why should Ahithophel get the glory in the single combat? You get to go out there. You get to go out there, Absalom, and you get to have the personal glory. Personally go into battle. And it shall come, we shall come to him in one of the places where he can be found and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. Anyway, and all of this stuff. So we get down to the end of it and in verse uh, 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. It was the hand of God that directed these circumstances, say. And, uh, and so it's interesting how that comes about. Meanwhile, Hushai is able to get word through to Zadok and Abiathar and they get, they get he's part of the network of informants that gets uh, news back to uh, David. Okay, so there's the story there. 2 Kings chapter 2, another bear story. 2 Kings chapter 2. This one's my favorite. This is the answer to the gang epidemic and hoodlums on the street. 2 Kings 2. And this is uh, in the succession between the ministry of Elijah and the ministry of Elisha. And uh, Elijah went up with a fiery chariot and uh, Elisha saw him go and, and received the double portion of his spirit. And, uh, and then as he departs, you know, on this great marvelous ordination day here as he departs with the mantle and with the double portion of the spirit and he, he undertakes his solo prophetic ministry to the next generation... But it says in verse 23, as he went up from there to Bethel, as he was going up, by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Now, does that seem like a big deal to you? <laughs> does it seem kind of, you know, sometimes it, we get the a view like when Moses struck the rock and we think, well, that wasn't that big a deal. Come on, I've done worse than that. And you think, but then you see the consequences and you also understand the full significance of Moses striking the rock twice when he was told to speak to the rock and then he strikes it and then he strikes it twice. And here's a type of Christ attacking the image of Christ. Christ is the rock. Christ, is he going to be struck twice? He's going to die once for our sins. Anyway, there's a lot of theology into why Moses' rebellion was so significant. There's a lot of theology as to why this man of God, Elisha, on the day that he's undertaking his prophetic ministry to Israel and to have these hoodlums, these thugs, you know, i got a lot of names for them, but these uh, gangbangers or whatever, obviously, first of all, it's a pack of them and they're described as youths. Where are the older men? Where are the, where's the leadership? Where's the fear of the Lord? Where's the accountability before the Word of God? 
as is so often the case, you've got there's no father in the picture. The absentee father means these gangbangers are just running, becoming a an uncontrolled force unto themselves. And they're mocking the man of God. Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. So, no, don't uh, don't mock your elders, reverence your elders. So when he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. This is not just a temper tantrum where a man says a swear word. Okay, We use the word curse as if, ooh, I cursed, which means I uttered a, a profanity. And cursing is more than just profanity or vulgar language. And, uh, and in particular, because with the same tongue we bless, with the same tongue we curse, and to utter, for a man of God to utter an imprecation, an, an imprecatory prayer, in the name of the Lord. God's the one who blesses, God's the one who curses. He cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. I think there's also a principle of self-defense at this point. What do you do? I mean, what are these 42 lads doing? What kind of a gang is, is this that's roaming around and harassing people as they're traveling on the road? So he went up from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. That's just another... You know, the, the, the prophets were ferocious. You know, if you think this is something, Samuel would be chopping up people into pieces and sending pieces all around on display. Um... So to, to, to utter a curse and then for God to honor that curse I don't think he spoke anything out of the will of God here that he what we loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven what we bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. When he uttered that curse on earth it's a reflection of the judgment that was already decreed by the judgment function of, of the justice of God. And uh, so God sent these bears and bears, animals never disobey. Animals never disobey the will of God. They always do what God sends them to do. So, my recipe for solving the, the gang issue? Yeah. All right. Hosea 13 and verse And, um, of course, Hosea, <laughs> this is the book of a faithless wife. And uh, Israel was the faithless wife. And they had defied Yahweh. They had defied the Lord. Even though he was their God, he was their covenant husband, that he had been so faithful to them, Israel had played the harlot. Israel had committed adultery against the Lord with every false god under the sun. And so... God assigns his prophet Hosea to marry Gomer, to marry a prostitute, and, uh, and then to take her back after she's faithless to him. And he has to give names to these children that he doesn't even think are his children, but he gives names to these children. And uh, he's, uh, you know, you talk about a humble prophet that uh, serves God in this capacity. What a, what a ministry. And so now we have... Um, a chapter here where Ephraim is, is the northern kingdom of Israel is being rebuked. And uh, judgment is coming. The whole chapter is, is centering on this. <clears throat> Ephraim spoke. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel, but through Baal he did wrong and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. And they say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, they will be like the morning cloud, like the dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor, like smoke from a chimney. Yet I have been the Lord, your God, since the land of Egypt. And you are not to know any God except me. There is no Savior besides me. Remember that? <laughs> I brought you through the Red Sea. I gave you Ten Commandments. What was commandment number one? <laughs> you know, commandment number two. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols and worship them. And here they are making these traveling calf idols and these things they can carry around and kiss and all of that. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, 
As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. They actually had a better experience in the wilderness because they needed manna every morning. They needed water. They needed guidance and direction. When they settled in their land, when they had pasture, when they settled in their land, when they grew complacent, they became satisfied, their heart became proud, and they forgot me. So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. And it goes on. Anyway, this is this is it. I find it interesting. The last prophet, or I mean the yeah, the last prophet to the northern kingdom, and the last king of the northern kingdom. Did you know that? Was named Hosea. The final king was named Hosea before they get swept away by the Assyrians. Anyway, the angry bear is a well-known proverbial character. And so we have this better-than proverb. Back to Proverbs 17, let's look at verse 13. He who returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. He who returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Now this is profound. This is um, scary actually. He who returns evil for good. And what we're accustomed to reading, you might misread this at first because you're so accustomed to reading uh, what we read in the New Testament. You might be accustomed to reading uh, the words of Jesus. In other words, turning the other cheek. You might be reading you might be accustomed to reading that that we don't return evil for evil but we return good for evil right and so we understand those passages and we that's clear we, we we're good related to the fact that when someone does you evil that we can be gracious and Christ-like and we can return to them good we can pray for them we can love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you that we have those applications there all of those verses, I want you to forget them all right now. Okay? In fact, I feel bad that I illustrated them. Let's just flush all that from our thinking. Because I think, unfortunately, when we read this verse too quickly, we think it's saying the same thing all those other verses are saying, is don't return good, uh, evil for evil, but return good for evil. This is not saying that. Read it again. It says, he who returns evil for good that oh my that's different that's something else that means somebody blessed you somebody did something good for you somebody served you in goodness and in in blessing and then you in return for that goodness you hit them back with evil you hit them back with evil okay and so you see the difference i mean it's huge it's like night and day someone blessed you and now you're going to return evil to them. Why would you do such a thing? Who does that? Well, <laughs> sinners, yeah, we all do. Um, you know, it's, it's remarkable because any think about in common grace all of God's goodness that comes to even the unbeliever. Think about in common grace all of God's goodness and, and yet do they, do they, they know Him but do they honor Him as God? No. Instead, they substitute the creature for the creator. They, they, uh, their foolish heart is darkened. When, when even goodness comes and they return evil, there is judgment that follows. And that judgment is more than personal judgment. This is such a serious transgression. And we're going to see multiple scriptures that, that bear this out. Evil will not depart from his house consequences to wives and children and family and descendants. We had the illustration with David a little bit ago and and think about the ongoing consequences for years that affected David and his house. His harem was abused. His children were victimized. In fact, one brother raped one sister, half-sister, 
in uh, in that. And there was murder, and there was there was um, just horrible things as a part of God's judgment upon a house, upon um, by association then the uh, the discipline that that reaches those under the authority of that circumstance. So I'm going to talk about this. I think this is significant. Israel's first two kings illustrated what Israel's third king wrote in Proverbs 17.13. And this is kind of neat to see this. uh, Solomon is Israel's third king. Solomon's the author of Proverbs 17.13. And what he's writing here is the story of David and Saul. The story of the two kings before him in returning evil for good. Because David had done good to Saul. Nothing but good for Saul. And Saul returned evil to David again and again and again. And so uh, it's spoken of in 1 Samuel 24. It's written about here as a principle of wisdom in uh, Proverbs 17, 13. So again, he who returns evil for good. That's Saul. Saul returned evil for David's good. And what was the consequence for the house of Saul? What happened to the house of Saul? Well, the house of Saul was removed. And in fact, even the good son, Jonathan, suffered. He died the day that his father died in, uh, at the end of the house of Saul. Okay. So Israel's first two kings illustrated what Israel's third king wrote about in Proverbs 17, 13. Evil will not depart from his house. And I think the rescue of Mephibosheth was also noteworthy. That David got Mephibosheth out of that house and adopted him, brought him into his own house, sat him at his own table. Because evil would not part from the house of Saul. Alright, so 1 Samuel 24 Got a lot of life of David this morning. That's kind of fun. Had lunch with Pastor Cliff yesterday, and he's taking uh, Lost Pines Bible Church through the life of David right now. And we talk about these kind of things. <clears throat> and uh, so much you can teach out of this chapter here. This is uh, where David's hiding in a cave and which, you know, try to capture David somewhere when he's on the run. Good luck with that. And uh, Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel, went to find David, and uh, goes into the cave to relieve himself and and happens to pick the wrong cave. You know, what, what a coincidence, right? The sovereignty of God that's at work here. Of all the caves he could have chosen to use for his outhouse, he, he chooses the one cave where David is in there with his men in the back of the cave. And uh, and now it's David's chance. He can kill him. And there's nothing that's going to stop it. And instead he just cuts off a little corner of his robe. You see that in verse 4. But notice David's men think this is it. This is the will of God, right? I've been praying about it. Here's the circumstances. Clearly this is the will of God. Go kill him. And David's got a chance to, to teach otherwise. Say, wait a minute, don't be so sure. Make sure you're seeing what you think you're seeing. So you cut off the edge of Saul's robe. But then he felt bad about it. Afterward, verse 5 says, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Remember, he'd lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. He didn't want to do that. So in verse 6, he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to, uh, to my Lord, the Lord's anointed until God sees fit to remove Saul from office, Saul is still David's Lord. And to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. He saved Saul's life that day. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Afterwards he follows after him and he says, My Lord, our King. Now this is really taking his life in his hands. To step forth in public when there's 3,000 soldiers there ready to kill him. And he steps out of the cave and says, here I am. 
And uh, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. Again, putting his life in the hands of the Lord. Because if you're just prostrating yourself on the ground, face down, in front of King Saul and 3,000 troops, holding up the edge of the robe, David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. Good thing David didn't listen to his advisors like Saul listened to his. I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father, see, called him his father. See indeed the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. And I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. (laughs) Open and shut case. I mean, case closed. The the argument is undeniable. The evidence is clear. David does not want Saul dead. If he wanted him dead, he could have killed him any time. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. He's even willing to accept the consequences of cutting off the edge of the robe said he may come under God's uh, discipline for that. So, um, as the proverb of the ancient says, out of wicked, wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. In whom is the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a single flea. The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me. May he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? So he returns that intimate language that David had called him father, he calls him son, is this your voice? You know, he's had for months now, he's had advisors talking about David, telling him about David, he's been obsessed with David. But he hasn't heard David's voice in months. He hasn't heard David's voice. And think about it, this is the voice that used to sing to him. This is the voice that used to drive the demons away. This is the voice that used to be so sweet. He hadn't heard that voice in ages. All right. Is this your voice? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Think about the voices you haven't heard now. and Like the gospel quartets, the uh, if I could hear my mother pray again, you know. Yeah, to, to hear that, to hear those that voice. Anyway. So he said, uh, when he gets done weeping here, in verse 17 he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. You did well with me, and I returned evil to you. That's the illustration. And that's the reality of what he was doing here. And Proverbs 17, 13 addresses this and says there's judgment for this, divine judgment. The consequences are not just personal, but for the entire house. And the illustration is there. Another example is David and Nabal. Next chapter over, 1 Samuel 25. So subpoint A, another example is David and Nabal. We talked about Nabal the fool and his wife Abigail and the background for this comes um, and uh, what happens here is starting in verse 2, there's a man there uh, in Maon, whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. So he's got a lot to lose. He has a lot, but he has a lot to lose, especially if he lives in one place, his business is another place, and there's vulnerability to, to robbers and whatnot. Came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now this man's name was Nabal. His wife's name was Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings and he was a Calebite. Now David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Car- uh, Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. 
And thus you shall say, have long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. And this is in grace, this is a, just a, a greeting and a, and a friendly exchange, because David and his men have been a blessing to Nabal this entire time. And it's a way to just simply communicate and fellowship and to bless. That it's a grace opportunity to to communicate the grace blessings you've supplied and to welcome any grace blessings he chooses to supply to you. Okay? And it's not a it's not a worldly thing. And it's not a car, it's not carnal saying you owe me now. You you're obligated to me because I scratched your back, you have to scratch mine. There's nothing human humanly uh, this is legitimate to fellowship over the grace of God and to celebrate we have done this without charge, without obligation and then just leave it there. It it affords him the opportunity to return grace. Does that make sense? Not an obligation, not a have to. And if he chooses to, then God is glorified twice. If he chooses not to well, that's a reflection of his diminished capacity and, and his lack of grace, and he'll need to learn better. But if he goes past that and returns evil for good, then he's under a curse. It's, it's more than just failure to respond in grace. And that's what we see here. So, um, peace to all that you have. Verse 7, I have heard that you have shearers, now your shepherds have been with us, we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes. It is a grace invitation. And he's not naming a price. He's, he's, um, he's not a legalist. All right. So ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor, that's grace, in your eyes. We have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Whatever you find at hand. It's your grace, it's your blessing, it's your want to, it's your joy. This is a festive day. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, and they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And you start to see his scorn. And who is the son of Jesse? More scorn. So it's not just personal. It centers on his house. The son of Jesse. His house. His clan. His tribe. All of this is corporate. There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. In other words, Seem like a renegade to me. Seem like uh, you're, uh, you know, the king says you're an enemy. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men whose origin I do not know? Ooh. Called them all a bunch of bastards. Okay. And uh, so David's young men retraced their way, went back, they came and told him according to these words. Now, like I say, this is far beyond just a grace shortcoming. This is far beyond just uh, a man with very little grace capacity giving a very meaningless, small kind of a grace pittance or, or uh, failing to appreciate the grace thing. This is actually open hostility returning evil for good. And hope we're clear on the difference on that. And what's unfortunate is then when David hears the words of this, he himself goes carnal. So he says, each of you gird on his sword, I'll show him. Now, so when you're going to return evil for good, that's bad. But now David is on the verge of returning evil for evil. And that's also bad. And David should know better because David has been anointed. He's going to be the next king. He's about to make a horrible mistake and Abigail saves him. Notice Abigail saves him. Abigail doesn't save Nabal in this chapter. 
All right. So David said to his man, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David girded his sword. About 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, and here's somebody with sense. Here's somebody who knows, because he knows Nabal, he knows Abigail, he also knows what the servants of David have been like. Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us. We were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. <laughs> These shepherds were fine. They were happy to have David's men out there roaming the hills. They felt safe. They felt blessed. They felt, it was, they, they felt more confident having those, those guys out there. Made their job easier. How many bandits did they encounter? How many lions and bears did they encounter? I think David's men took care of all that stuff. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you should do for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. He is such a worthless man, such a belial that no one can speak to him. And we know how the rest of this chapter goes. Um, She comes with grace. She comes with a gift. And this is not bribery. This is not um, the world's uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind. This is not carnal payback. This is just grace on her part. 200 loaves of bread, two jugs of wine, five sheep already prepared, five measures of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, loaded them on donkeys. Said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. And so there's stages for this. The gifts are going to arrive first and then she's going to arrive with doctrine, with fellowship. And uh, she did not tell her husband Nabal. And so um, they come face to face and David says in verse 21, Let's see, so it came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down towards her, so she met them. And uh, David said, said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness. Now you see, we know he's carnal. We know he's carnal because he got angry and said, grab your swords. We know he's still carnal because now he's starting to think about what he's earned and deserved and what his payback should have been. He's totally lost all grace capacity when he says, surely in vain I've guarded all this man has in the wilderness. If you look back over something that you were doing in grace and you think it was a waste of time, no. You were functioning in grace. That's not a waste of time. That's never a waste of time. In vain I've guarded all this man has. Uh, So that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good. That's the expression. That's what the that's what Proverbs 17:13 is talking about. May God do so to the enemies of David and more also. Notice how angry he is. This this carnal language is ugly as sin. May God do so to the enemies of David. Wait a minute. What about the enemies of God? And more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belongs to him. What a vow. What an angry thing. What a horrible, tragic thing to say. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey, fell on her face before David, bowed herself to the ground. <laughs> Boy, that sounds familiar. Didn't we just read that a chapter ago? Isn't that the, 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 the laying prostrate before David? You think that's a wake-up call? Because just in the last chapter he was lying prostrate before Saul. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. She's willing to become a substitute, a kinsman redeemer. She's uh, welcoming David to impute Nabal's guilt to her account. Let me tell you, when she talks doctrine like this, when she fellowships in the content of Bible doctrine, when she conveys to David the language of a kinsman redeemer, it works. Oh, it works. That sparks everything that needs to spark in David's soul for his repentance. 
on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. Please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. Had she seen, had she been aware of it, grace would have been the celebration. This festive day would have been for the glory of Yahweh Elohim. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, (laughs) he's the living God, is he not? And David has spiritual life. As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood. I mean, she knows she's already been victorious. (laughs) She's not even done with her speech yet, but she knows that he's going to listen. She knows this is bearing fruit. And that the Lord has not, and she's not claiming credit either. She's not bragging, saying that she was so smart and she did this great thing. It's the Lord in her that rescued David on this episode. The Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. Remember, she accepted the guilt. She accepted the guilt. And now she's asking for forgiveness. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil will not be found in you all your days. If he returns evil for good, his house is doomed. See, she knows the doctrine from Proverbs 17, 13, and she, it hadn't even been written yet. She's talking to the man whose son would write that proverb someday. All right. Anyway, it's a beautiful chapter. And look at his response. You get down now to, uh, see, if you're going to shed blood, if you're going to be your own avenger, that's not how he designed it. The Lord avenges, not us. So verse 32, David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. He gives credit to the Lord as well. God sent her and it saved his life. And blessed be your discernment and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. We're not the avengers. Make room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. We don't have capacity. We're not designed to execute that. So, it is indeed a festive day. It is a day of many blessings. And through Abigail's ministry, the Lord through Abigail saved David and they worshiped together in uh, this fellowship of the Word of God. And that's how... I guess we'll leave it there. The chapter ends and, and uh, Nabal does die, not because David murdered him, but because in the judgment of God, the fool was done. <clears throat> and so David is going to marry Abigail. And what's interesting is they have a son, I think his name is Chilion, um, not named in this chapter, but when you get to the begat chapters of Chronicles, you can learn. Of all the sons that caused trouble in, in Chilion was not one of them. <laughs> the best thing we can say about Abigail's son that she had from David is that he never caused trouble in uh, David's days. We never see him again, actually, anywhere else in the Bible. Okay, I'm out of time. Um, it took longer than I thought we would take to read the Samuel story or the uh, Saul story and the Nabal story. There are more Davidic examples. They are recorded repeatedly in the Psalms. And I do want to take the time next week to work at those Psalm 35, Psalm 38, Psalm 55, Psalm 109. Because not only do we see that returning evil for good is horrendous, we see that the judgment of God comes to the household. It comes to the extended um, families, the extended dependence of spiritual leadership that should know better. And so that gets our attention when we when we consider the application that's made on the part of husbands and the consequences their wives might face. Parents and the consequences their children might face. 
pastors and the consequences their congregations might face uh, in all of the the uh, applications that we might find in this in this context. So we'll pick up on this next week, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. Continue to bless our studies. Thank you for Proverbs. Thank you for the timeless blessings that they apply to us today, just as fresh and vivid as, as the day they were written. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.